going to read to you from the book of Exodus. This is from Exodus uh, chapter 17. I'm going to start reading at verse 1. It's on page 75 in the Bibles uh, in the chairs. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you stuck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, a few years ago, <clears throat> end of the 90s, before Sally and I had children, we went on a road trip across America, or across half of America. We flew into Kansas, and then we traveled, a uh, little van that we hired from uh, Missouri, right in the middle, all the way down to the west coast, uh, down to San Francisco. And on the way, we, we checked in at various places that you go, um, Death Valley, Las Vegas, Yosemite, all these places, and had a, had a great time. It was fantastic. Uh, late 90s, um, we did this. And it was the days, back in the old days, before the, uh, the internet really got going, and so we're still using uh, guidebooks. And our guidebook told us about this uh, canyon that you could explore. And it's a canyon called the Black Canyon in Colorado. This is what our guidebook said about that place. Big enough to be overwhelming, still intimate enough to feel the pulse of time. The Black Canyon exposes you to some of the steepest cliffs, oldest rock, and craggiest spires in North America. With two million years to work, the Gunnison River, along with the forces of weathering, has sculpted this vertical wilderness of rock, water, and sky. And so, well, that sounds good. Let's stop off there. We'll explore uh, the Black Canyon. So we uh, travelled on the way, uh, pulled in, and there was a little visitor centre... Um, we stopped there, um, filled our little water bottles, headed down the trail into uh, the Black Canyon. If we were doing it now, I would check out the internet and I would probably look up the Black Canyon in Wikipedia. This is what Wikipedia tells you about the Black Canyon. The river can be accessed by steep, unmaintained trails called routes. These routes require about two hours to hike down and two to four hours to hike back up. The canyon descents are strenuous 
and require class 3 climbing and basic route finding skills. (laughs) Steep descents, impassable ledges and lack of cover are some of the challenges hikers face. Poison ivy grows abundantly in the canyon. Long sleeves and hiking boots are strongly recommended. The National Park Service warns the following. Routes are difficult to follow. Only individuals in excellent physical condition should attempt these hikes. Hikers are expected to find their own way out and to be prepared for self-rescue. I didn't know what self-rescue was then. I don't know what self-rescue is now. So with our little bottles of water, in our shorts and our t-shirts and in our trainers, we made our way down to the river at the bottom. Beautiful place, uh, deserted, uh, very quiet. I spent about an hour or so playing around on the river and then started to make our way back up. Soon we got lost. Not long after, our water ran out. An hour passed. Another hour passed. Another hour passed. It became harder and harder to find the way. We realized we hadn't seen anybody for hours. At one point, I sat down on a rock and said, I I just can't do it. I just can't do it. You're going to have to go on ahead and find help. I can remember the feeling of fear and thirst. We composed ourselves. We thought, well, we've been climbing for three hours. We've been going up all the time. It surely can't be much further. So we we gathered our strength, uh, steeled our spirits, and continued uh, the climb. One point, literally pulling ourselves up by an abandoned chain that had been left uh, hanging down. We finally uh, breached the rim, found our way back to the visitor centre. Visitor centre was deserted, it was all locked up, all the cars had gone, and we thought we were going to die of thirst. And then there was this little, little water fountain. And I remember neither of us said anything as we just drank and drank and drank uh, from the drinking fountain got back into our car, and continued on our journey. Fear and thirst, and the relief of water. In our reading from Exodus, that's the experience of the children of God. That's the experience of the people of Israel. Fear and thirst. They're traveling in a desert. They've been sustained miraculously by uh, food from heaven, the manna and the quail, uh, but now they thirst. There's no water to be found. And it says in our translation that they grumble against Moses and they grumble against God. And that's not quite the best uh, way of putting it. The word they use for grumbling is a kind of technical uh, word, and it means to bring charges against And it says that they they were threatening to stone Moses. And in the ancient Near East, what you would do, there was no law courts, but you'd bring charges against somebody. And if they were found guilty, uh, you'd be punished by stoning. So there's a kind of a law court thing going in here. And the children of Israel are saying, look, God has brought us out to this place, but he's guilty of abandoning us. He's guilty of leading us to die. And Moses, you're his spokesman and you've been speaking for him and we've followed you as we've followed him and now here we are, we are going to die. And Moses brings this to God. And God says, 
put me in the dock, put me in the court, and bring those charges against me. I will stand before you on a stone and strike the stone with your staff and water will pour forth. The staff that the elders would carry, all the elders would gather together, they would carry a staff. It was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of judgment. Remember when there was the plagues in Egypt, Moses would strike the staff and the plague would fall. He strike the Nile and it turns to blood. And so God says to Moses, put me in the dock. Let me see your judgment. And so that's what they do. The elders gather together, the people gather around, they're around the rock at Horeb, the mountain. The Lord appears for them on the rock, Moses strikes at the rock, and water pours forth, flows from the rock. Enough for 2,000 men, 200,000 men, and their women, and their children. And they drink beautiful, delicious, life-giving water. God has been put to the test and he's been vindicated. Another lesson has been learnt. He can be trusted. He saved us, but he didn't save us to die in a desert. But he saved us that we might prosper. And he's leading us on a journey. And this journey at times will be long and at times it will be arduous and it will be times it will be on long, uh, dry and dusty roads. But along the way, he will provide, and he will replenish, and he will refresh, and he will restore. Alec Matir, uh, an Old Testament scholar, calls this uh, encounter an example of God's anticipatory providence. His anticipatory providence. God knew what they would need and provided for it centuries before they knew they would need it. It wasn't that he suddenly created a a miraculous spring of water to, to pour forth at that place at that time. But they knew millennia before that he would lead them to this place and that they would be hungry and they would be thirsty and they would need to drink. And he knew there would be a stream flowing through because he's the creator of the whole world. And he knew all it would take would be Moses to strike a rock in the right place and that stream would flow forth. God's anticipatory providence knows in advance, centuries in advance, what they will need and when they will need it and provides for it. The Jews would commemorate this event for centuries. There are three great feasts in the Jewish calendar. The Passover, we've talked about already, uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And a tabernacle is a tent. And along the long journey in the wilderness, the people of God stayed in tents like the Bedouin. And they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, when God led us in the wilderness, when God provided for us in difficult times. And over the centuries, that that remembrance, that ritual, that uh, calling back to mind would become more formalized, more ritualized. The Feast of Tabernacles would take uh, days. And it would be centered around the great uh, temple in Jerusalem, 
and would be led by the high priests in Jerusalem. The feast would last for several days. And on the last day of the feast, uh, the greatest day of the feast, uh, the high priest would take a gold uh, jug and he would go out of the temple and he would head down to the pool of Siloam, just outside uh, the temple. And he would, he would fill the jug with water. And then he would lead a procession back into the temple. And all the other priests would follow and all the people would follow on behind and they'd be singing and they'd be praising and they'd be dancing. And then they would head through uh, the water gate, it was called, and they would head through into the temple. And then he would head up to uh, the great altar in the middle of the temple. And there, on the altar, there would be a silver bowl. And before all of the people, he would pour the water onto the altar, into the bowl. And they would all remember how God had provided for his people. How he provided water in a thirsty desert. There's an account of this. Um, in the New Testament, in John uh, chapter 7. And in Jesus is there um, at the feast. And it says that he's teaching in the temple courts. I'll read it to you. On the last and greatest day of the feast, so the day when the high priest goes down to the pool of Siloam, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus presumes to speak up on this, one of the holiest days in Israel's calendar. At the high point of the drama, as the high priest pours forth the water, Jesus says, are you thirsty? Are you in a desert place? Then come to me. Come to me and drink, and streams of living water will flow up from within you. How can he say such a thing? How dare he say such a thing? Well, the answer is that Jesus is the greatest example of God's anticipatory providence. God's knowing what people need uh, centuries before they know that they will need it and God providing for them. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew that the world would fall, that people would be estranged from him, yet he makes provision for that. The Father creates the world, and the Son is prepared to die for the world, to set it right. And the Spirit will be outpoured uh, to give life to all those who call upon the Lord. God's anticipatory providence, knowing what we all need before we know that we all need it and providing for us. Come to me, 
says Jesus, if you're thirsty. And I'll give you the spirit of life. Final story. There's there's a film just come out called Everest. Um, It's based on a book called Into the Air. And that book was written by a man called John uh, Krakauer. And it tells the story of the fateful 1996 uh, expedition to climb Everest. A group of about 20 climbers in two teams uh, mount an ascent of of Everest. Uh, They climb uh, to the summit. As they go, they carry um, cylinders of oxygen and they, they go up. The, um, the ascent takes longer than they planned. Some of the ropes they're expecting to be there are missing. It takes a while to, to fix them. Uh, they finally get, get up to the top. But when they get there, the oxygen that they've got is, has run out. So they've got to get back down um, quite quickly. As they're making their way down, they get separated into little groups of twos and threes, one or two on their own. And then disaster strikes. Uh, a blizzard uh, appears out of nowhere and descends upon the climbers on the mountain. Some take cover, some struggle on alone, they get separated. Uh, John Krakauer was one of the climbers, and uh, he tells a story in this book. Um, Eight of the 20 or so will lose their lives on the mountain. And as his way of dealing with that, uh, John uh, writes a story. The book's called Into the Air. At one part, he tells a story of he's, he's walking down, he's with a, another climber, a more experienced climber, a man called Andy Harris, who's done this uh, before. And they're struggling down, they're heading for their camp that's about halfway up Everest. It's just a few, few tents, but they know if they can get there, they can get safety and they can get out of this uh, storm. They see the tents ahead of them, but then as they're, as they're coming down, uh, they stumble, and they've stumbled across some um, oxygen canisters. John recognizes these as canisters that they brought with them up the mountain. And he knows that they're full of oxygen. And that all they need to do is just break open the canisters, take the oxygen, uh, they'll recover, and then they can make their way onto the tent. So he stops his friend Andy and says, look, here's the oxygen, let's take some of this, uh, this oxygen. His friend Andy also recognizes the canisters but he recognizes them as canisters that they've left behind. As they were traveling up the mountain, Everest, uh, they were using oxygen. When they finished with their canisters, they were empty. They didn't want to carry them all the way to the summit, so they dumped them down. So he sees them, and he sees empty canisters. Andy doesn't want to wait. He wants to push on ahead uh, to the tents, so they split up. John stays, Andy pushes on ahead. Andy sees empty canisters. John sees full canisters. John breaks open the canister, inhales through his mask, fills his lungs for the first time in hours, uh, can think clearly because he's no longer suffering from uh, hypoxia, oxygen uh, shortage, follows the footprints of his friend in the snow. They lead to the tents, gets in his tent, falls asleep in exhaustion, wakes up the next morning, goes to check on his friend. His friend's tent is empty. He traces back his steps. His friend has walked on, walked to the tents, and then in confusion and through a lack of oxygen, has stumbled on past the tents. Uh, He's carried on down the trail. The trail leads to a cliff edge. 
And there on the edge of the cliff edge, there is his friend's uh, big uh, warm jacket, which has been taken off, and his ice axe that he was carrying. And what he realizes that has happened, his friend has been suffering from uh, oxygen starvation. He's not thinking clearly. He's stumbled in the blizzard past the tents. He's carried on going. He's come to a cliff. And in his hallucination and in, in his delusion, he's thought he's arrived at his tent. He's stripped off his jacket and then he stepped off, off the, uh, the cliff edge. He stepped into the air. And that's the name of the book that John uh, wrote. Come to me, or you who are thirsty, and I will give you life. There's a message here for those of us who've never uh, met God in Christ, never encountered Christ. In him there is life. In him there is life. And Mike will talk about that in a second. But there's a message here too for us who have been Christians for years, who've been uh, walking along for years. And some of us have been walking with uh, canisters of oxygen, but we've been walking as though they're empty and the canisters are full. And there's a reminder here for us too, to enjoy life to the full, to live life to the max. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you know me and know the Father. Jesus says the Spirit will well up within you and he will give you life. And that's a life of joy and peace and fulfilment. There's a challenge here for us too who who call ourselves Christians and been walking with God for years. Do we know the fullness of that? Do we know the reality of that? Or do we continue in our own strength? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift of Jesus and that in him there is life. And we thank you that today we celebrate new life and the new life that Mike has discovered in you. And so we pray your blessing upon him. And we offer you ourselves again as well. Lord, encourage us to come to you afresh, to meet you anew, and in you to find the fullness of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.